Well, well, let, let, let's pray, and, um, and then we'll get going. The Lord be with you. God, we pray that as we, we talk about sacraments and ways of making grace evident in our lives, that you would help us to make your grace more evident in our lives, both through the th sacraments and through the way we treat one another and the ways we come back to you. Amen. Okay, so, um, uh, you know, I was looking for this pad so I could write stuff down, but I don't really have anything meaningful to say anyway, as, sort of, as normal. So, so it's probably best we don't have it, because uh, that could be distracting. What I wanted to talk to you about today and the next two weeks, actually, are, are the sacraments, and traditionally there's seven. Um, we call two of them major sacraments. Does anybody know which two those are? Baptism and the Eucharist, right? Do you know why they're called major? You know why we divide them? This goes way back to the Reformations, but to the early Reformations. You know, prior to um, the Diet of Worms and to the Anglican Reformations, there were just seven, period, right? Seven to be, to be approached. And then after the Reformations, the reason the Anglican Church said major, or sometimes you hear in church word, instead of using the word major, you might use the word greater and lesser. Oddly enough, if there's two people named Mike and one's a little bigger than the other, the church language is the greater and the lesser. You could also use those categories for age. Just thought you'd like to know. Because back when I was in San Diego, there were two Mikes that went to Neshota House or Seminary, and there was Mike the Greater and Mike the Lesser. Okay, anyway. Um, and their age and girth actually were... were they corresponded, oddly enough. Okay, so the reason they're majors is because these two are the ones that every person is not just invited to participate in, but meant to participate in. Okay, so these are the majors all people called to participate in the majors. And then there's the five minors. And think through, even as we name them, not all people are called to participate in these. So do you know these ones? The other five? Okay, so marriage is one, and we can call it matrimony or holy matrimony as we like. Confirmation. Now, isn't that interesting, right? Confirmation is not a major sacrament. Is not. I also heard ordination, by which we're thinking of the holy orders of the diaconate, the priesthood, and the bishopric. Right? Okay? That's five. Confession. confession, which we no longer call confession since 1976, although that's the spirit of it. Do you know what we call it now? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. And then there's one more. Unction. unction, right? Now, sometimes, unction, do you know what that means? Anybody know what that one means? Anointing with oil, okay? Now, I want you to know that sometimes unction, can you see that? Does it even matter? Golly, we just put it up there. Unction, anointing with oil, is something that um, in various times of the church, and I mean capital C, church life, that was called something else like last rites. So at some point, it's been called only extreme unction, extreme meaning anointing with oil at the time of death, 
right? We've kind of dialed that back a bit to say, well, no, actually the sacrament is any time you anoint somebody with oil. And do you know when we might do that? At a healing service. And we're thinking not only, though, for healing of a physical ailment, but could be a mental or a spiritual ailment, right? Um, interestingly enough, people are receive unction at some of these other ones, right? So if you're baptized, you receive unction with something called chrism. That's where the priest says you're sealed with the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever. So the water comes first, the unction comes second. Um, unction also often happens at reconciliation and at ordination, and some bishops do it at confirmation. Some will, will use unction to confirm. Others will just put their dry hands on the confirmand's head. So interestingly enough, unction is one of the most combinable of all the bits. Right? In fact, many of these are combinable because I don't know, maybe I've done one baptism that did not include the Eucharist, one out of like 45, and that's because we did it privately. And that was the wishes of the baptizand, is the, the word we use. Okay, so those are the big seven. And does anybody know their prayer book well enough to know what the, the catechesis of the Good Shepherd defines a sacrament as being? That's it. Very good, right? Did anybody, just out of curiosity, did anybody do the catechesis of the Good Shepherd? This is the one that's in the prayer book. So if you're ever bored during the sermon, you have a beautiful window, but you also have a really big prayer book that you can flip through. And towards the back, you'll find all kinds of interesting things. So there's something in there called the catechism, but we now often call it the catechesis of the Good Shepherd. And that is really, you know, catechism is basically a question and a response to various questions. So you, 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 you'll find that, for example, if you ever go to a Seder meal, why is this night different from other nights? And then the ceremony is set up to answer that question. Every other week we eat bread with leaven. Why don't we eat leavened bread? Right? The question has to be asked so that it can be answered. Well, the, the catechism in the back of your prayer book offers you a lot of different definitions like What's a sacrament? How is marriage sacramental? What is sin? And these are really interesting things because the prayer book actually offers some really rich definitions of, of what these faith vocabulary words mean. And, and what's helpful for me is I've come from a different tradition where the words, the same words, often meant very different things. So I know I'm, I'm being really long-winded on this, but, but I want to share with you a bit of of how my tradition did some of these words and how the catechism does them differently, and that's really helpful for me. Okay? So the, the tradition I grew up in, nothing wrong here, the definition I got for hell is separation from God. Okay? So, so the definition for hell that I grew up with was that you would spend eternity completely separate from God. That's not what the catechism says. The catechism says separation from God is the definition of, of sin. Now that's interesting, isn't it? So just think about how different that is. Because the truth is, if you could spend eternity separate from God, then God is not omnipresent, which was something we learned in church that God was. If you could go to a place where God isn't, then God isn't everywhere. 
So then it starts to think, this is actually really deep Anglican theology to think that sin is a life lived in isolation of God's presence, and that's more our perception than it is our reality. Does that make sense what I'm saying? If God's really omnipresent, you can go nowhere where God is not. Does that mean God is in hell? Well, it might mean, like C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce, that hell is somewhere inside of God. It's a place like the ulcer in God's stomach where we roam from time to time, but God beckons us out of. Well, I find that really, really helpful because um, there are different places in life I've lived where people are living in hell right now. Now, you know somebody who is living in drug or alcohol addiction. Let me tell you, that's the definition of living in perceived isolation of God's presence. God's there. God has to be there. They just don't know it. And how could they? Does that make sense what I'm saying? The reason I'm telling you all this business about sin and hell and words is because the sacraments are meant to be the things that call us out of those states of being. They're meant to be outward signs of God's inward grace. The reason I think there's a limit to seven is because seven's one of those great biblical numbers. It's traditional. But the truth is, if I asked you, where have you most found outward invisible signs of God's inward and invisible grace, some of you would say these, but I would bet you many of you would add to that list. I would bet you many of you would add things like service or learning, right, or friendship or parenthood, right? I mean, there's lots of different things. But these are the traditional seven, and what they're meant to say to us is that there are physical ways we participate in something that's metaphysical. I'm probably not giving a good use of your time. I'm a little bit, a little bit worried about it. At any point, remember, you just say, like, enough of this. Let's talk about marriage. Or stop that. Let's talk about the Eucharist. Okay. I think the reason that physical is so important is because, and we, 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 we've lost this in some ways, for better, some ways for worse, since 1928. You know, you used to say the creed, um, the Apostles' Creed especially, where you'd say that Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate and he descended into hell, into hell, not to the place of the dead, into hell. And then we believe in the resurrection in the Apostles' Creed of the body. Not just the resurrection of the dead, but of the body. And that's where I think this language about physicality becomes so really important, is that these are ways that we tangibly, physically participate in something, right? The Eucharist involves eating. Baptism involves the sense of getting wet. Unction involves oil. It involves touch. I'm going to tell you, this is interesting, because having grown up in a tradition that did not anoint people with oil, we didn't. There's really, for me, been no more powerful way to pray for somebody than by anointing them with oil and putting my hands on them. And, and some of you have participated in that. And I've got to tell you, um, really, every time I do it, I'm able to sense God's presence more than if I hadn't done it. Does that make sense what I'm saying? And I think it's because it's the intimacy of touch combined with the intimacy of what it is we're asking God for. And without the touch, there's not the physicality, which is really about the outward 
sign. Does that, does that kind of make sense? By the way, it's good to hear that we don't just do extreme unction. We do unction for any reason. We do unction for people who are worried about a graduate seminar they're in. <laughs> for peace. We do unction for people who are sick. We do people unction for people who are worried about, you know, the college choice of their kids or the spouse their kids have chosen. Well, I mean, that's what it's for. And it's a way of making our prayers not just ephemeral, but embodied, right? And I think that's really the goal of these, of these sacraments, right? So what I wanted to do for the next couple of weeks is actually talk in terms of how we've experienced them and, and ways we might go forward. And, and in order now, having made a very long introduction, one more bit about introduction. And you'll hear a bit about this maybe in the sermon. I haven't decided if you'll hear it at 1030. But if you're there at 8, you did. Uh, our speaker last week, John Newton, wrote this book called Falling into Grace, right? And basically what he says is that, is that we... Often, our experience of grace is not one that we just seek out. It's one, frankly, that we, that we find when we're caught. And very rarely do we jump into grace. Jumping is not very scary. You, bad things can happen when you jump, but you sort of know that when you leap, right? You know when you slide into first base. I don't play baseball, but here's one of those baseball analogies we like to use. When you slide in, you can, you can get hurt when you slide, right? But you kind of know that when you slide. You know when you dive for a football or a frisbee, right, that, that it's going to hurt some. That's very different from being pushed or being tripped, right? Because you don't have that mental calculation of risk. In fact, you weren't ready for the risk at all. Uh, John says that's kind of really how life goes, is, is we, get, we get pushed or we get tripped, and, and we have this really uncomfortable sensation falling, and so there, there's God yearning to catch us. And, and interestingly enough, um, I wonder if the sacraments aren't one of those ways, really, that, that we can consider God looking to catch us. Because right? God, I think, the more and more I, I get this, and I'm trying to integrate actually the way I live and the way I think. Do, do you know what I mean? I have really good thoughts about how God acts and really not great trust in those thoughts. <laughs> but, uh, but I think, um, I think the idea is that God does not descend in full control and gingerly, you know, every step is purposeful. But I think what we read is that God has... God's diving for us into first base, as it were, and God could get really hurt. In fact, God got really hurt on Good Friday. And that represented God diving. And God dove towards us in the incarnation, utterly out of control as to whether or not we were going to receive that. And consider, right, God can't be that full of poise when God's not in control of our response. And God's chosen that way of life, right? It makes me think that... Um, Part of our orientation toward the sacraments might ought to be to dive a little more often than we try to control. Here's what I mean by that. For all of these seven, we often have this perception, it's very traditional, that the church is in control of the sacrament. Church is in control. And the church is going to be very, very careful not to give God's grace out when they shouldn't. Isn't that a funny position? I mean, just think about that for a second. You're not ready to receive God's grace. How dare you ask for it? 
Instead, I wonder actually, in considering these, if the church shouldn't be doing a little more diving than we're used to doing. Now, what do I mean by that? Any of you have to go to baptismal instruction in order to baptize your kids or grandkids? Anybody? Just two of you. Well, that's interesting. I have colleagues, and and listen, I'm not saying this is bad. I have colleagues that will only baptize your kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews if you go to a six-hour class on baptism. Now, Now, you understand why they do that. They want you to completely understand what it is you're doing and what it is we think God's doing. How many of you know people that get baptized for their family members more than any other reason? You know those people? I know those people. I usually baptize their kids. (laughs) What do you think making them go to a six-hour class does for them? Does it inspire awe and wonder? It could. But this is, I think, one of the difficult things about these, right? How much do we give them away profligately? Or how much do we require people to earn the ability to be in a stance to receive them? Do do you know what I'm saying? And I actually think that's a theology worth wrestling with, is what we do with these things. How many of you have gone to a church where either the bulletin or the priest said, the Lord's table is open for baptized Christians of all denominations? You ever heard that out of the mouth of the priest? How about, the Lord's table is open for Christians of all denominations? Anybody heard that one? So they took away the baptism thing, right? So if you're not one of those, and you're there, what did you just hear? You're not welcome, right? Anybody been to a church with what's called closed communion? Closed communion means the priest has to know you to serve you. At those places, what happens when the pastor or priest is coming to you and they don't know you? What do they do? Well, if it's closed communion, they don't give it to you, right? If, they give it to you anyway? Oh, gotcha. Okay. Okay. Usually this kind, that's, that's what I call closed communion or what that phrase is, usually is at a smaller level, right? I mean, maybe you're thinking a church that has 200 people because beyond that, it's really hard to know. But, but in these places, my experience has been if they haven't had a conversation with you beforehand, you don't get it. Do they bless you? I don't know the answer to that. I don't remember getting blessed. <laughs> I may be blessed in the southern way, you know, like they blessed my heart. You know, you know what that means, right? <laughs> um, again, I'm not being critical. I'm not saying we're operating from a point of superiority. What I'm asking us to consider before we even talk about these individually, right, is what the sacraments are for and how they ought to be dispensed course what you know and I grew up a good evangelical I did and I can tell you in 1 Corinthians Paul says to the Corinthians there are many people who are celebrating the feast of our Lord in an improper way and the way they're doing it they're not eating and drinking grace they're eating and drinking judgment upon themselves and that was our criterion in my faith tradition for having closed communion in fact we always thought that taking the Eucharist, we'd never call it that. 
fact, we thought it was only a symbolic act, but we thought it was in general a dangerous thing to do. Because if you didn't do it in the right spirit, the words of Scripture said you were eating and drinking judgment on yourself. From that little nasty piece of wafer thing, much grosser than what we eat here. I mean, this is shaped like a little, uh, little rectangle. It was terrible. I mean, I, I don't even know. It was like flour and water. That was about all it was. And we got a little vessel of grape juice, you know. In the age of 10, I was morbidly afraid of drinking judgment on myself by eating this food that didn't even taste good, right? That's what we did. Um, and maybe in some ways, that's a viewpoint to be considered. But if we're afraid of the means of grace, maybe we're approaching them incorrectly. Does it make sense what I'm saying? If these are meant to be outward and visible signs of God's grace, and we're afraid that participating in them will hurt us spiritually, well, that isn't grace, is it? Does that make sense, what I'm saying up front? Now, what I like about this community is that at the Eucharist, we don't qualify who's welcome. And that predates, that predates me, right? That's not something I made up. That's, that's who I perceive you to be, you know? We, we, we formalized it with this invitation that this is God's table and not the church's, right? So sinners and saints are welcome, right? Because everybody's invited. So we formalized it. But you were already doing that practice, and, and, I, and I appreciate that. Um, and that's just one. But maybe what we should do, if it's okay, is walk through these one by one. Next week, we're going to actually invite you to consider one not on the list as sacramental on that service. Okay? And the reason we want to do that is uh, as a means of thinking about what else are outward and visible signs, but particularly I think service is one that many of us resonate with, and ways that we're serving at St. Thomas. Right? We're going to make that very concrete and ways we might continue to expand our, the sacrament of service. And then we'll come back to the ones we don't finish. Does that seem like a good plan? Well, let me ask you then, so that it's not just me blabbering on, is there any one of these you particularly would like to start with? The Eucharist. Very good. In every week. And, and of course, that's relatively new, that the Eucharist is every week, right? That practice goes back about 41 years with that new prayer book. Isn't that funny? A 41-year-old prayer book's new. That's older than I am. Okay. <laughs> Prior to that new prayer book, how often did you have Eucharist? Once a month. Well, the church I went to, they had it 7.30, and then there was morning prayer, and then at all services it would be once a month. Okay. So you actually went to a relatively progressive sacramental church because it, it was available. There are some churches that will make the Eucharist available every day. Right? Usually they're Anglo-Catholic, quite honestly. Right? Usually they're, they're in the Anglo-Catholic tradition. Um, but otherwise, once a month. I grew up um, in what's called the Independent Christian Church, which is a church mostly only found in Kentucky. It's very similar to the Church of Christ. I mean, not the United one. They don't call themselves the divided Church of Christ, but, you know, uh, the one that doesn't have a piano. They do it every week. Every week they, 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 they do it. So we, we did it every week. When we became um, 
we started worshiping at a Baptist church. I think we might have done it once a month. When I was in a Methodist church, I think we did it once a quarter. Um, this, this, this happened quite a bit. So everybody does this a bit differently. And, and part of what marks us, uh, it's just a word, but part of what marks the difference already in the Episcopal practice from most of the other evangelical traditions, I think the Catholic Church might be one of the only other places to use it, is that we almost always use the word the Eucharist. Right? Otherwise, you'll hear communion and the Lord's Supper. Right? And those are, really, those are really great words actually to hold all together. Eucharist is a Greek word, and it means Thanksgiving. And that's all it means. So it's the Thanksgiving feast. We do that in November, right? But we're meant to do it every week. And part of the invitation, I think, is it's, it's sort of dual-sided, is that the Eucharist is a place where we give thanks to God for the blessings and grace and quite frankly, the nutrition we're going to receive in our spirits from the, the spiritual food of the body and blood of Christ. But it's also a time when God gives thanks for us. Now, don't let that one blow by you, because again, that's one of those phrases that cognitively makes a lot of sense, but I don't usually trust in. <laughs> that God looks at me and is thankful. But the truth of the Eucharist is that God looks at Phil and Michael and Martin and Gloria and Larry and is thankful for you. And, and this, I think, is a really good phrase and worth us living into. God is not thankful for us in spite of our flaws. God is thankful for us because of our flaws. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Think about in the relationships you've been in, and I'm going to skip down to marriage for a second. Not the first two years you were married. The first two years you were married, you were thankful in spite of your flaws. You wrestled with that, and if you made it past 10 years, and 10 seems to be a magic number, right, and continued to find joy, it wasn't in spite of your flaws. I mean, if you continued to find joy in each other after 10 years, it was because of them. That bit of clutter that drove you crazy, you started to realize appreciative things about it. Oh, my partner isn't picking up after themselves because they want to spend the time with me or they want to spend the time with the kids and they're committed to picking it up later even though I want it done now. Do, do you know what I mean? There's those bits, those little nervous, those habits that bother us that sometimes we start to have empathy for. And God has empathy for the very things we're most self-conscious about. I mean, that's the Eucharist every week, is God saying thanks for coming to the table. What a difference in our real and faith lives trusting in that would make. I don't, I don't trust it, I'm telling you. I don't trust it. I believe it, but I don't trust it. <laughs> what a difference that would make. What about the Eucharist? Well, you know, quite honestly, it's probably the most divisive thing we can do as Christians. I dare you to go to an ecumenical service where they have communion. <laughs> they don't have those, <laughs> by the way. You know this, right? There's not an ecumenical service where they have communion or baptism because everybody's really particular about how you can do those things. What do I mean by that? Well, when I was 20, I lived in Malta, 
on a study abroad, and I went to an Anglican church for the first time. And I went up to the rail. I thought this was very strange that people knelt in church, having done, never done that. And the priest was wearing some kind of velvet clothes, which was very odd to me. And they were all drinking out of one cup, which I'd seen exactly one time. We ran out of little cups one time in the middle of church. And so they, we had a like, crystal goblet, and they poured the grape juice in that. And they said, you know, friends, you can all drink out of this crystal goblet with the grape juice, but just be warned, you could get sick. And some, some people in my little Christian church, the divided one, came up and they drank out of the little crystal goblet. They drank grape juice, you know. That's really gross. And I thought, oh, they just went out of little cups this week. So, so I went up to the rail and they put that silver cup in my mouth. I thought that was strange. And I almost spat it down all over that velvet. I had no idea people actually drank wine in church. I'd never heard of that. And that's not just a funny story. There's people that don't believe you should. And if you think alcohol is categorically wrong, talk about drinking judgment on yourself every Sunday morning. That's what we do here. Of course, that viewpoint's only about 250 years old. I'm not sure if you know that, right? And, and people don't know how young that idea is. They don't realize, right, that the, the Welches, the Welches were the ones who invented pasteurization of grape juice. They were good Methodists. And, and they did it, you see, because um, alcohol abuse had become rampant. And what they decided, right, is that in order to discourage alcohol abuse, they wouldn't include it in church. But, you know, the moment you do that, you can't drink out of the same cup. It's not safe. There's actually three things that make drinking out of the cup safer than drinking out of little cups, safer, or than dipping out of that cup. We often think if you dip the bread, it's much safer for you, right? But, but the, the, the three pieces in your favor are that's a fortified wine, that's port, that's 18 or 19% alcohol compared to an 11% Pinot Noir, right? So stronger alcohol content, antimicrobial. The cup is silver, antimicrobial. That's why, by the way, we don't use pottery here. I know in the past you've used pottery during Lent. It's not safe. We're not going to do that. And the third piece is the purificator wipes it, and not just the friction, but that takes off the lipstick. You know, lipstick is one of those things, or chapstick, that'll just sort of leave residues on the rim. If you, you can track if someone's doing this right as they also they rotate the cup every time somebody drinks it. Okay? Why do we do it? Because that's the way we actually receive the practice. Jesus himself received the practice drinking out of a silver cup on Friday nights, on Shabbat. The cup's called the Kiddush. Anybody been to a Sabbath meal before, like at a Jewish household? Nobody's been before. My brother's Jewish, and you, by the way, you can go to a Jewish household that's not like anathema for you to attend. You don't ruin the meal, you know. But what happens every Jewish uh, Shabbat, Friday night, is the oldest woman in the room lights two candles and sings a blessing over the candles. And then the oldest man in the room takes the Kiddush cup, that's a silver cup that has wine in it, blesses the wine, and then that's circulated and people sip out of the Kiddush cup. Often they say things they're grateful for. Jesus did that at the Last Supper. When he blessed the wine and circulated the cup, he just said it meant something different. They were used to the practice, right? And of course, uh, part of the reason we do it on a one cup is because it represents that we all 
drink out of the same cup. I mean, really, it, it, it physically represents what it's spiritually supposed to represent. Now, you might be hung up and say, Mike, how on earth is that possibly safer than everybody having their own little bitty glass? Because hands are much dirtier than mouths. And because it takes one sneeze or one cough to ruin that whole tray of little precise little plastic cups. Beyond that, what does it mean that Christ beckons us to receive him individually from our own little cup? instead of us all being invited to drink out of his. And this is one of the reasons, actually, I'm Episcopalian as the Eucharist, because my first time, which wasn't good, I went back again, and, um, and I knelt on a cushion next to a lady who was 80 years old, prim and proper, put white gloves on for the Eucharist. Anybody seen that? She carried gloves in her purse. She didn't wear them. When it was time for the Eucharist, she put them on. And then to my left was a refugee from Burma, Myanmar, who put a, a hand-knitted shroud on when she came to the rail. She'd become an Episcopalian in a refugee camp. And to her left was a homeless guy who only came to church because there was coffee hour afterwards and he could have a donut and he didn't feel as bad taking it if he'd gone to church. And we all drank from the same cup. And I sort of just cried at the rail <laughs> because there's nothing like that. There's nothing like that for what this is supposed to represent. Having grown up with the little cups, it is nothing like that, right? And now it sounds like I'm being critical of the other tradition. Uh, I am. <laughs> There's nothing like drinking out of the same cup. There's just nothing like it, okay? Um, as I told you, the, the, the root for the practice goes back to Judaism. And, of course, we've been really divided as to what it means. Not forever, you know, the first Christians, when they did it, they did this as a meal. They didn't do it as a little bit. They would gather together for a potluck dinner. <laughs> very southern of them, very southern Israel of them. They would have a potluck every Sunday, and, and they would call it the Lord's Supper. And they understood that when you went to this table, you weren't eating at anyone's family table, even if you really were at somebody's home. The table temporarily represented God's table, and meals are places, right, where you have to be civil even if you don't like each other. And this is good southern, southern lesson, right? Meals are places where you just zip your lips, right, and you're respectful for each other. I, I think that's a pretty good practice, right? It's pretty good Southern grace, actually. And you've got to invite people you don't like. That's the other good part of Southern hospitality. You can talk about them after the meal. But during the meal, you've got to be there together, right? Well, <clears throat> the earliest Christians basically did it that way. The thing I referenced earlier where Paul says some people are eating and drinking judgment on themselves, what would happen is people would show up at the potluck at 3 o'clock and eat all the food. And then the day laborers would come and there'd be nothing for them to eat. So they weren't getting nourished at the table that was meant to nourish everybody. Well, it's become you know, less of a meal since Christianity got really, really institutionalized and numbers grew. I mean, imagine having a potluck every week. Well, maybe it would work. I don't think it would work. I just I don't think it would work. Um, so instead, as theology changed, and really, really um, one of the people that helped change this, right, is St. Augustine among, and St. Thomas Aquinas, right, who got these ideas about what's wrong with humanity and what's right with grace. And, and the idea really became not that this is God's table, but that this is an altar, 
I mean, you just think about how different that is. A table that you eat a meal at is one you're invited to come to so that you can be nourished for when you go. That's why we eat, so we can be nourished to go do stuff. An altar is a place where you come to kill something, right? That's very, very different because usually altar doesn't have the connection of nourishment to send you out. It's a place you go and watch something and leave. And this, this happened in Christianity, not originally, it actually took a long time to happen, that the Lord's table became an altar. And, and, and this is part of where the Eucharist becomes really divisive, potentially, is that for some traditions, it's only an altar, and every time you go, Jesus is sacrificed on it again. And this is not the oldest understanding. That understanding didn't really start until about 1200. And it was based on the idea that God, ju God's justice is so strong and perfect that God has to punish any infraction infinitely. Which, by the way, doesn't even make sense, right? I mean, if you get punished infinitely for something that you do that's finite, that's not even really just, is it? I mean, so you tell a lie. Does the lie last forever? I mean, you don't. <laughs> Right? I mean, we die after 100 or 120 years, or 70 or 50. You know what I mean? So how does punishing a lie forever even make sense? Well, somehow we bought the idea that it, that it makes sense, and then the only way that God can forgive it is if someone dies for it. And that's why you go to the altar every week so that Jesus can die for you again. And literally what happens in, in this way of thinking is that the wine turns into the real blood of Jesus who was killed again on the altar. And the bread turns into the flesh of Jesus who was killed again on the altar because you messed up this week. Now, we all know that the wine doesn't taste like blood because you've had it. By the way, anybody who believes this knows it doesn't taste like blood. And anybody who's had it knows that the bread doesn't have the consistency of skin or taste like skin. So what happened in the Middle Ages as this developed is people um, said, well, it doesn't become the, the flesh and blood of Jesus in flavor or texture or appearance, only in substance. Okay? And that's why if you, if you hold that really, really strongly, you've got to be really, really careful because if somebody drinks the real blood of Jesus without reverence and respect and without having confessed already, well, they might defile it. Something so holy, you know, it, it's so holy and so precious that if you touch it in the wrong way, it'll mess you up. And that's transubstantiation for you. That's it. You understand the positive of it. There's a lot of reverence for it. The thing I worry about is if we're afraid of a sacrament, which is an outward means of grace, it's no longer sacramental. If we're afraid to receive grace, we're doing it wrong. I mean, I think I, I worry about that. What's the Anglican position? Well, 
How many people are there in the room? There's 25 Anglican perspectives in the room. <laughs> this is what I love about the Anglican Church. Okay. What do we say? We, we, we did this during the, the Reformation, and we still stick, we still stick to it, actually. And, and we actually go back to Luther and Martin Bucer for this position. Is not that it literally becomes uh, the body and blood of Jesus, which would be the transubstantiation position. It literally does. But that it contains the real presence of Christ. Now, you ask anybody what that means, and you'll get 28 different answers, right? The real presence of Christ. What does that mean? Uh, the other position that you'll find in, in what we call the lower liturgical forms, and having grown up Southern Baptist, that'd be one of them. This was Ulrich Zwingli. Is that it's just, it's, I shouldn't say just symbolic, but it's the level of symbol. So the real presence is in our minds, not in the stuff. Does that make sense for what I'm saying? Actually, that's not incompatible with the, with the Anglican position of it having the real presence, right? Because a lot of it is you know, what we believe and what we experience. How can, it, um, how can it mean different things? Well, again, one of the things we have the invitation, I think, to do is, is to really sit and think about altar versus table imagery. And I've told you this before. The reason the Episcopal Church uses the word altar and sacrifice, particularly in the older prayer books, is because we had to do that in order to get an American bishop. Way back in 1776, we fought this war <laughs> for independence, and having become independent, the only bishops in the United States were Englishmen. We wanted our own bishops. I mean, that's why we fought the war. So we sent somebody over and said, would you make this guy, Samuel Seabury, a bishop so that we can continue to have an Anglican style of worship? And England said, no. <laughs> so good luck. You might be independent of us politically, but you need us spiritually. I mean, really, that's what it was. And Samuel Seabury, by the way, was the one who ended up writing the first prayer book because we could no longer pray for the king and queen. We had to pray for the members of Congress, the justices of the Supreme Court, and the president, right? Those are some of the very minor changes. The major changes happened when Samuel Seabury was told no in England, but was invited to Scotland. The Scots would make him a bishop. And by the way, when we talk about ordination, in order to make another bishop, you have to have an already bishop. You can't create a bishop ex nihilo. That's just sort of the, the, the order. We'll talk about that when we get there, right? Scotland invited him and said, okay, listen, we know you've got that English theology where you talk about the Lord's table. Up here in Scotland, we talk about the Lord's altar. So if you'll use the Scottish rite instead of the English rite, then we'll consecrate you a bishop. And that's why we have the X in the Episcopal shield, right? St. Andrew is the patron saint of Scotland. You've heard of the Scottish Rite before. You know, they often drive go-karts and wear little hats, you know. Um, the Scottish Rite, though, is actually referring to the Scottish way of celebrating the Eucharist, which was decidedly Catholic or Anglo-Catholic in not the Reformed Church that um, Anne Boleyn and, and Henry VI had helped, Edward VI had made. So it was actually a very different Eucharistic service in Scotland and England, and the Scottish one came to America and actually changed what Americans were doing. 
And that's where language of sacrifice, memorial of Christ's offering, invaded the Eucharist that we were doing at the time. And that was the substantive change in the first prayer book in the United States. And you think back, if you even were doing the 1928 prayer book, even if you're right one people, there was a lot more reference to sacrifice, memorial, altar in 28 than there is even in the right 176 prayer book. Is anybody familiar enough to vouch that claim for me? Yeah, uh, and, and you know there were people who really did not like the new prayer book because it was changing the theology. It, it was making the service less about an altar and more about a table, and that's a substantive theological change. Uh, yes, sir? Yeah, what we do now actually is really honoring of both. Even at right two services, we sort of make the parallel claim. Well, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm, I'm just trying to describe the, 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 the trend. Obviously, we remember, right, that Christ offered himself a sacrifice, but I think it's important for us to consider in what way he did that. And the tradition I grew up in, Jesus' sacrifice was you're bad, God loves you so much, but he'll send you to hell forever, so Christ is sort of the one who takes the spanking you deserve, right? Um, it, there's a lot of internal logic to that, but when you stand outside of that for a bit and you think, well, Jesus, if God's all-powerful, why does God have to punish you forever anyway? Like, doesn't, have, doesn't God have enough power to forgive you without somebody dying? Isn't that the definition of being all-powerful, is that I can just forgive you without having to die. <laughs> and if God will send God's own son on the cross, and like they're related, <laughs> what will God do to you? I mean, you know, <laughs> these become, become really good theological critiques, right? And the worst one, right, this has been really, really helpful for me to think about, because I'm, I'm married to a strong woman, gladly. Um, you know, you start to get the idea that suffering's a really good thing. Because God made really great things out of the suffering of Jesus, right? And, and this may sound funny to you, but I grew up in a tradition, this is changing now, thank God, when a woman would come to the pastor and say, my husband is abusing me, the pastor would say, go back and win him to Christ with your patience and your diligence. And you talk about advice from hell, that's about as close as you get in my brain, to tell somebody they ought to do that. But the reason they were saying that is because that's how they understood Jesus. Living through hell to somehow get us out of the hell we deserved. Right? And think about how different that is from how we started this. God is diving for us. God is thankful for you because of your flaws. I think all that's at stake. And by the way, I'm not trying to tell you how you should approach the Eucharist. I'm trying to say there are lots of different approaches to the Eucharist. And frankly, probably the, the most meaningful way we approach the table is with lots of them in mind. This is what I like about the Episcopal Church is there's not a monolithic position. There's not. There is at best, I think, robust conversation because frankly, there's times in my life where I resonate with one more than the other. And there's times in my life where I resonate with both and three other things we haven't even mentioned. Does, does it make sense? 
I'm worried I'm giving you a really, really boring lecture on this, but, but I think those are the sort of the opportunities or the challenges we have with coming up at the rail, right? If it's God's table, we go to the table for the same reason we go to it at home, to include one another, to be hospitable to one another, to have nourishment so that when we leave, we can do stuff, <laughs> right? By the way, that's why they ate the Passover lamb. Not because the lamb represented sin, it didn't. It represented calories that they needed to get out there and take a long journey. If it's like that, Mike, why do we only take a little bit? Because God can do a lot with a little bit, right? <laughs> that's, sort of, that's sort of what we think. Is that helpful? Are there ways you've experienced the Eucharist that are sacramental for you, ways that I've mentioned or haven't, specific ways or general ways? We're going to the table or drinking out of the cup or receiving the bread have been for you outward experiences of something God was doing inside. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Um, and, and, and not to interrupt sharing, just one of the things I've seen the Episcopal Church do that's really interesting for those open, you know, there's, there's kids that come to the rail and their parents are like, not yet. You know, and so, so can, some kids are waiting for something. I've also seen churches where kids were receiving from the time they put their hand out. They did something called First Solemn Communion, which was a way of receiving it again, but for the first time. And, and both of those are, are, are interesting, interesting appeals, right? Yeah, I appreciate that very much. And, and that sometimes there is something as a rite of passage. I'm hoping for us that the confirmation is the rite of passage and not the Eucharist. <laughs> we'll talk about that why in, in two weeks, you know. But, but there are rites of passage here. Marriage is certainly a rite of passage. Ordination is a rite of passage, right? Um, anybody else reflections on Eucharist and where it's been for you? Particularly if you've grown up around it, right? Yeah. It's helpful. I'm going to tell you a couple other just little bits here that'll transition us to the, to the next week. You know, um, in the prayer book, when we look at the Eucharistic prayer, there's choices. The person up front can either be called the presider or the celebrant. Think about what difference that would make for you. Really, it's a lot of diversity in those two ideas, right? By the way, that's all the way through. At marriage... The person can be called the presider, sometimes can be called the officiant, or can be called the celebrant. Think about what difference that makes for you. It may make none, right? It makes a big difference for me, right? <laughs> it makes a big difference. Um, think about what we do with the leftovers. This is really interesting. The leftovers either get sent out in a lev box for people who aren't physically there so that they can be included at the same table, or they get put in a box. Do you know what it's called? The, they're the reserve Eucharist, but the box itself, does anybody know what it is? The box is called the tabernacle, and it hangs underneath a red lamp. Right? And that red lamp is the sign of the reserved sacrament. If the, if the tabernacle's empty, the lamp should be out. There's only two days a year where the, 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 the lamp's not burning over the tabernacle. That's, 
the night of Monday, Thursday, well, it goes all the way through Good Friday and Holy Saturday because you can't celebrate the Eucharist those days. You can't celebrate it. You can have the reserve, but you, you can't celebrate. Okay? Maybe we'll talk about that next time if you're real interested. There used to be a place in the back behind the Lord's table. By the way, that's what you'll always hear me call it. Behind the Lord's table would be a little bit of arch called an ombre. And the tabernacle was almost always in the ombre. Our church doesn't have an ombre. I'll tell you why. It was built after 1976. Before 1976, the Lord's table was against the wall. And that's because the presider didn't face you. The presider faced God. <laughs> now, since 76, the table has come off the wall so that the presider or the celebrant can face you. We don't have an ombre because, again, we were built after 76. So there's no, no time I'm facing God except when I'm looking at you, which is a good theology, isn't it? Right? There's a lot wrapped up in that. Um, anyway, we celebrate how special the elements are because we don't throw them out. Even if there's little bits of them, we either eat them or we save them or we feed them to animals. So I want you to know that in the sacristy, that's where the sacred things are kept, Mostly the expensive things. I'll tell you, a silver cup, a lot more expensive than plastic ones. I guess over time, it's an economy of scale. But um, in the back, there are two sinks. One's a regular sink hooked up to the city plumbing, and the other one, do you know where it goes? Straight into the ground. That's called a piscina, and that's where any wine that's left over goes. We return it to the earth, not to the sewer. And any holy water is also goes down the piscina. Uh, almost all Episcopal churches and Catholic churches have these. Uh, of course, there used to be that all the reserve wine had to be consumed by the priest. I've seen that go real poorly. <laughs> you probably know about that. Oddly enough, I still try to do it because I went to a parish where that happened, and that was actually informational and my, and my piety was how I, I treated this stuff. But I will tell you, when the Lord's cup is full, it's meant to be shared. <laughs> it's not, or else somebody's keys stay in the sacristy. Okay, anyway. Um, okay, so, so we'll pick up with a bit more Eucharist in two weeks. Next week, I want to interrupt because I want us to talk about service up front. I want us to be talking about traditional things and non-traditional things and back and forth as we go through. Uh, thanks for being here. See you next week if you're here.